I, I try to get across to people that you can be happy and bold and playful and have fun doing all of this. It's not all serious. Mental health is a serious game, but getting well can be a very, can be a great journey if you use the right tools and you put the right practices in. That's how it's been for me. Welcome to Social Fabric, conversations with people about their passion and their interaction with the community. This week's guest is Brian Penny. In October 2008-13, Brian turned his life around after 15 years of heroin addiction. He's now a PhD student, writer and a motivational speaker. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are more on socialfabric.ie, iTunes, Spotify or whatever you get yours. The show is also broadcasted weekly on Dublin's Near FM 90.3. The songs here have been shortened for rights reasons. Can I call you up a while on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Just sit and talk a while. Alright, well look, we get started. Let's so. get started, yeah. Brian Penny. Thanks a million for coming to the studio to have a chat with me. Uh, I know nothing about you, which is great. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and you came nice and early, so I wasn't really prepared, but we get started. Um, your tagline is change is possible. And I know that's why you're quite keen talking about that. But I want to start for from the beginning, really, because that's before you we talk about the change. Let's talk about where it got you here. Where it got me here. Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. Um it's, it's funny enough, this is obviously the thing I know best. I've talked about it a lot. It's the one thing I struggle with. I often find I've done a radio uh, show, one of my first radio shows, and one of my first podcasts, and we had to start it again because I wasn't comfortable with talking about it from the start. But I'm very comfortable now, which is good. Good, uh, good progression, good change. But it started for me, I would imagine, it goes all the way back to the moment I was born, actually. I was born with um, mal intestinal malrotation, it's called. So my intestines are actually twisted in my guts. So what had actually happened was I over the weeks I just cried as a baby, as a newborn baby, and my mum thought there was something wrong, seriously wrong. The doctors didn't think there was, and he started as a young mother, they didn't believe her. But lo and behold, I lost half of my birth weight and nearly died. So I was actually near had a very near death experience when I was like a baby. So I had um I basically had a big operation. I was only given a small chance of living, to be quite honest. I had a big operation to rejig my intestines and stuff like that. But I came through it. But what I've realised since is that only in that was in 1979, but or 1978, but only in 1985 did they give babies anaesthetics and anaesthetics for operations. So I think that I cried for the first year of my life apparently because I was still in a lot of pain from the operation complications. So through psychology, I've learned as an organisms, I would have grown up as a newborn baby to realise the world is a dangerous place, and I think that played a part in anxiety, which had a huge impact on me getting into drugs, which I'll be talking about. I became a drug addict for years and then throughout childhood I was always a very anxious and nervous kid and there was there was alcohol issue I, I, my parents are great fantastic with the tools they were given they've they done a great job but alcoholism runs in my family as well alcohol issues let's just say well alcoholism runs in the family and there would have been a lot of issues with me as a kid I was very aware I was a hyper aware child my little nephew reminds me of how I used to be I, worry, I worried a lot I over 
taught lots of different things and chronic anxiety. There was one one time I remember specifically when I watched the World War Two film and there was a siren going off to say the bombers were coming. And I remember being up in my room and I heard a siren-like noise and I freaked out thinking it was World War Three. I was only a kid and that, that was my mindset. I always feared and worried about things happening, always thinking about the future and scared of the future. And that was me in a nutshell. And I suppose that went on from there. And as I got a bit older, I, I don't remember being chronic, having chronic anxiety as I got that little bit older. But I always had this fear about me. I was agitated and unsettled growing up in my teenage years, with my early teenage years. And I suppose what happened then, I lived in an area, I actually used the word underprivileged in a talk recently. My dad wasn't too happy and I haven't said this to him yet, but he was actually right because I wasn't underprivileged at all. We came from a very rough area, but I wasn't under underprivileged. So I have to, to apologise to my dad at the weekend. We didn't fight over it, it was funny. But um, he was right. I didn't come from an underprivileged uh, background. I would have gotten Christmas toys, clothes, good field, all of that. That I was okay there, but a very rough area. And for me, it was only a matter of, it was a matter of fact, I was going to do drugs, I was going to drink, it was just everyone else done it around me. And I remember when I started doing drugs for the first time, light drugs, it just took the anxiety away and it made me feel a little bit better, a little bit safer, a little bit better in myself. And I started messing around with drugs, I suppose, when I was 14, 15, 14, 15. And then when I was 16, 17, I don't know the exact dates, but I tried methadone for the first time, not realising it was an opiate substitute. Um, I thought it was like we were messing around with Valium and tablets and, st- and acid and stuff like that and I took methadone and that that took the, uh, drugs just made me feel good and I didn't know why but then when I was 17 and I think the first time 17, 18 and I took heroin for the first time and I'll never forget the experience I remember describing it as nirvana on earth it just made me feel at peace and at home and that's really that's where that's the introduction of how it went into drugs for me Okay, but before we get into the drugs, because I want to ask you a lot of things about that. Um, you mentioned a couple of things about your your mother and father being really nice, nice people, normal people. Um, and what about you? You know, you say a rough area. I don't necessarily need to know where you're from, but what about that community? What? Why? Why your anxiety? There was nobody sorting it out saying to you like why are you so anxious what like your parents your friends your teachers your whoever it was nobody kind of could pinpoint to say what's wrong with brian you know why is he so anxious no for starters i didn't tell anyone and this is a thing that would have um i always i always think of myself as bulletproof and i can handle i can do i can i can handle this myself still a bit of an issue now in not in terms of mental health but in terms i can go it alone one of the songs i picked is based around that and um, this lone wolf mentality, I can go it alone. So I never really told anyone because I didn't want to worry my parents. I wouldn't have wanted to worry them, so I wouldn't have told them. And they would have known I was anxious anyway. But with the lack of skills they had, anxiety runs in my family as well. So they wouldn't have known how to deal with that. Um, I didn't even know I had anxiety. I was diagnosed with anxiety when I was 20 after I was an addict. I, I was addicted. And I, I, I was about 18, 19, and I had my first panic attack maybe 20, and I, the doctor said I have anxi- a generalised anxiety disorder or whatever. I never even heard. I heard the word anxiety, but I didn't know what it meant. I was convinced I still had it. I was having a, a brain hemorrhage or something. But I didn't know what I had. I thought I, I thought it was normal. And I suppose people in the area might have thinking it was normal as well. Like When I say a rough area, like I can say where is it. The area is called Ladieswell in Blanchardstown. It's not too bad now. But 
the area where I came from, drugs were rampant, robbed cars were rampant. I would imagine, I think I, we, I was chatting to a friend there not so long ago, and acquaintances of people I grew up with, acquaintances that I knew, some friends as well, I would say I know at least 40 people that died throughout them years, probably 60, 70 if you really went into it. Um, someone only died recently, um, I, heard, I heard recently as well, and it was just the nature of the area, Just it was a really bad area, and... I don't know whether anxiety is a problem in these, un- in these underprivileged or, or rough areas as well. Fear, anxiety, not knowing what's going to happen next, agitation. And maybe that drives the anger, drives the the, the, the bad behaviours as well. I think it plays a part. Okay. You mentioned a song. The first song you gave me is um, Season Change by Future Ireland. Why do you pick that one? Why did I pick that one? That's, that's one I picked that's based purely on my recovery. So a few of them would be based on issues in my recovery that's carrying over. But that's based purely on my recovery. And change is possible is me is me mantra. It's it's me mission to show people that change is possible. And for me, Seasons Change is that it, it, the lyrics of that song and the way that song describes it is Seasons Change but it's okay. Everything changes. For me, I'm writing an article on it right now, is um, life is always now. Life is only ever now. It's never the future. You don't live in the future. It will only be the future when it's now and the past is gone. So it's only ever now. And the essence of now is change. The now is always changing. So what I, I remember I thinking one time, so if the now is always changing, now is change, in essence. And if you don't like change... You don't like life. So you've got to embrace change to like life and embrace the now. And for me, that song represents seasons change, embrace change, embrace the present moment. I want to stay for a second um, with Brian, the teenager, just before yeah. you start to experiment because, again, the whole project of this is trying to understand communities, what we do for each other, what we don't do for each other. And uh, Blanchardstown, a number of years ago, okay, there was robbed cars, there were people doing... But were you playing football? Were you playing guy? Were you doing any of that stuff? And yeah, I was, I was a talented enough footballer. A lot of people, I don't think I ever would have made it. I don't think I was that talented. But a lot of people would have thought I had a chance of going to England and, and stuff like that. So I was quite good at football. And I was academic as well. I was pretty academic. So I would have been, I, I certainly thought of myself as somebody going places. Um, I really did. And I didn't, sm- a lot of my friends smoked cigarettes as well. I'm a bit unsure of the years. I was talking about someone to this uh, talking to somebody about this the other day and I'm a little bit unsure on the exact years but my friends were all smoking cigarettes I was having a drink uh, but I wasn't smoking hash I wouldn't I wouldn't inhale smoking to because I was all about health and football football mm-hmm. crazy and I got a knee injury around 14 15 years of age I think in and around that age and what had happened was 
Um, I hadn't played football in months. I couldn't train because I had a knee injury. And for some reason, it was like me, me uh, resistance broke. And I remember saying, oh, give us out. Somebody, somebody actually says, oh, I get a deadly buzz. A deadly buzz off the nicotine rush. And I said, you get a buzz off cigarettes? And that, that sort of attracted me. I wouldn't put dirty smoke into my lungs, but I'd do, for a, if there's a buzz going, I'll take that. And I remember taking a first puff, thinking it was the only puff I'd ever have. And it was a Samson, big dirty Samson tobacco roll-up. I'll never forget it. Nappy, we used to call them. <laughs> and it gave me such a great little buzz. And for the next year... I used to smoke just to get that little buzz, but it, it went away. You wouldn't get it as much. But then I started smoking a bit of hash and stuff like that. And I completely forget your question, but it's come back to me. It's come back to me. <laughs> um, and what happened then was I, I went to a physio. I went to O'Neill Sports Therapy Physio, and they gave me these exercises to bring my knee back into alignment. It was like a posture problem. And because the drugs had kicked in, I was enjoying drugs. I was enjoying uh, drinking, enjoying messing with friends and getting been a bit bold I suppose as, as younger people do and has been enjoying that that the football sort of faded into the background I still was mad for football but I blamed up until only about ten, five, seven or eight years ago when I was still in addiction I blamed the physio for my ruining my career it's crazy when you think about it but I never put the work in on my knee because I, 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 I was finding other things in life and that was a that was a pivotal moment in my life I always look back at that as a pivotal moment because if I didn't get the injury or I didn't take the cigarettes, I didn't get into the buzz thing, I think I could have gone down a different path. But from there, I went down a, in the, the drug path. But I stayed very resistant to that kind of thing for a while. I still always thought I was an academic. I still always thought I was not an academic. I was academically minded. That I was smart enough that I wouldn't be a real addict, as I used to call it. And that sort of kept me out of serious addiction for a while and kept me functional. But it kept me very deluded. And then I became a full-blown addict and I still deluded myself into thinking I wasn't. Uh, when you say academic, what were you into? What was the thing? Like, were you books and English or what was the thing that attracted you? Right, so I wasn't academic back then, but I was just good. At, um, I was good at studying. I was good at studying. I, I remember stuff like I, I didn't get an amazing leaving cert, but I got a, I got, I got a best in my class and a low class in St. Declan. So I had done pretty good, but with minimal study. So I could have done a lot better. And so I can I can retain things and structure things. So I would have an, I would have been academically minded that way. Mm. Yeah. The reason I'm asking all this is because I, I think I mentioned to you over the phone. I grew up in Rome, so it's a completely different environment. But all of us played football. Half of us played, carried on playing football. The other half ended up bearing heroin addict. So there was very much a, for us. Uh, there was a boredom in the area. But you know, how do you play football? You were interested in, or there was not not much else to do, and unfortunately, half of them went their own way. Um, was it the same for you? Like there was, you know, the surroundings apart from the football. Was it was it an element of um, boredom? Is probably not there, but you know, was there an element? I'm not getting out of this. You know, but there's nothing happening outside of this area. Blanchard stands, so I might as well. Definitely, definitely. And funny enough, uh, Blanchardstown's a big area now, but where we lived, ladies, well, it's like a, a housing estate with 200 houses, and that's all that was there at the time. So it wasn't even Blanchardstown, it was the little bubble of ladies, well, we lived in a bubble, like a bubble, and there was all fields around us. We used to go down to the fields and down to the forests and do acid in the forests when we were kids. We used to do mad things, but it was it, seemed, it was fun. It's, I'm, not saying it's, I'm not promoting it, but there's good elements to that as well when you're that young it's, it's the silliness of it and all of that but um, what I would say yeah it was an absolute bubble and there was definitely an inevitability about it me and a couple of my friends believed we could get out of that so it wasn't inevitable for us but 
did we did we really believe we could get out of it? I'm not too sure. I went on a school outside of Blanchardstown, but I still it was like it was like let's say I was in the bubble of ladies. Well, I didn't get out of the bubble to go to that school. I, I, I it was like let's say my arm stayed in the bubble. I was still within the surroundings within the school, but I stretched the bubble towards that area, brought it with me, and then went back again. It was still all about ladies. Well, in Blanchardstown when I was in that school. And um, yeah, there was definitely an inevitability about it. It brings me back to um, I done an interview with uh, I done an interview with Philly McMahon recently, the Dublin footballer, and I seen him doing a talk as well. And his book is brilliant, the choice. And it brings me back to that, like his brother got into addiction and he made a choice to get into football. It's a real dichotomous version of it. They're just divergent there, and. I suppose there was definitely an inevitability, but not many people got out of Ladieswell, in fairness. It was probably more, you said 50-50 in Rome. And I've noticed that percentage in other areas around Dublin, rough areas in Dublin, or more middle-class areas in Dublin, working class maybe. But in Ladieswell, I would say it was 90-10. It was a pretty tragic area back when I grew up, like it really was. Wow. Nirvana, Penny Royal Tea. Why did you pick that one? Why did I pick that one? That's I was only listening to it on the way in. <laughs> That one, there's, um, I was listening to that, and that, that, that was pretty much my life and addiction. Anyone that knows me be laughing at this to be listening to where uh, there's a line in that uh, cherry flavoured antacid. If you smelt me years ago, it was just orange flavoured rennies. And that's all I took all the time to cope with it because I was taking so many drugs, drink, and no food. I constantly had stomach pains and horrible pains. And I can just relate to Kurt Band so much in that song. And what I was always searching for, which I didn't realise at the time, I didn't know existed at the time, was a spiritual solution. I was looking for peace of mind. And there's a piece in that song as well. There's five bits of that song that just sing to me. One of them is, he's talking about um, uh, Leonard Cohen's afterlife. That's what he'd like. And that's why he was, uh, Kurt Cobain was obviously looking for. I was looking for. I didn't know it existed. I think I've found that to an extent now. I definitely found that when I was in detox, when I had an experience of coming off methadone. I had an amazing spiritual experience. I don't like the word spiritual, but it was a perspective shift. And But the one, the, the real lyric of that song that really gets me was... Cocoman talks about drinking penny royalty and what what I've looked into the lyrics of what that song means and that's a poison. So he was basically talking about heroin or any drug. He was specifically talking about heroin and it turned me into it robbed me life. It says drinking penny royalty stole the life right out of sight of me. And when I was in addiction, especially near the end, I was soulless. I had no soul, I had no energy, I was dead inside. And drugs basically stole the life out, of, uh, out from me. It really did. And another lyric in that song as well, it just says, turned him into a thief and a liar. I was literally a thief, a soulless thief and a liar. That's all I was. And when I hear that song, it just, I can relate to it so much. And it gives me so much gratitude. Because Kurt Cobain, as we know, shot himself in the head when he was 27 years of age. I, I didn't I didn't do that I'm still alive and I'm very grateful that I've gotten it in the essence I'm not saying I certainly haven't got Leonard Collins afterlife but um, I, I've experienced what he was looking for I experienced what I was looking for and didn't know what it was and I'm very grateful when I listen back to this and it brings me back to realise how lucky I am
I want to stay. Now you mentioned a few times now the drugs, and by no means we're promoting. In fact, we're completely the opposite yeah. here. But um, and as I say, unfortunately, I lost a couple of friends to it, uh, and some of them thankfully recovered. But they, the stolen years, you know, when we when we enjoyed life, they were somewhere. I don't know where they were. And but it, just tell me a bit about. You know, it was fifteen years you were uh, you were in addiction. Yeah, of heroin, some sort. heroin, heroin addiction. So that's yeah. a long time. It's, it's a long, long time, time on um, on the body as well as the mind. Yes. And you look like very fit young man now. But uh, tell me a bit about the whole thing. I know you mentioned a liar and a thief, and and unfortunately, that's normally what happens yeah. unless you're independently <clears throat> wealthy and you can <laughs> yeah. you can feed the addiction. <laughs> tell me a bit about that and uh, things that you like to share with us and yeah, how I, bad it was I'm pretty open about it all to be honest I functioned for a long time I had a good job for a, most of that time nearly all of that time I had a good job actually um, how I held that down down that job was because people thought I was an alcoholic some people knew I was an addict but I was I was pretty good at my job that was the one thing when I was awake which is a strange thing to say but when I was uh, coherent I was pretty good at my job and um, so I kept that but for them 15 years, 12 of them years, I was a registered addict. So I was actually going to a methadone clinic every once a week. I was giving urine samples, which were pretty much always dirty. That's the nature of addiction. Like nobody does methadone and only does methadone. I do methadone every day for 12 years, pretty much every day for 12 years. But I've done heroin pretty much every day for 12 years. And benzodiazepine and zopiclone. Methadone does not work. A good friend of mine who's still in addiction and um, deep in addiction said to me one time, that a methadone is supposed to be a maintenance drug. It maintains you, so you're not addicted. It's just BS, it really is. And it, what he said to me was that methadone doesn't maintain you, it contains you. And that's what it does. And it works to an extent. If people are going out robbing, what methadone does is it, give, it takes their, steals their energy. Like that song, Penny Royalty, takes the energy, takes your soul. So you have no, you have no good up and go to do bad things but you've now got up and go to recover and do good things so in them intervening years then 15 years I was just dying slowly inside the memory that jumps back at me would have been especially in the latter years I'd I'd go to work I would um, suffer for 8-7-8 eight, eight hours while I was in work with chronic anxiety I'd take an amount of drugs just to keep me not me so my anxiety wasn't crippling me it was, it was still crippling me but not crippling me to the extent where I, I was just like freaking out and so I'd take some drugs to get me through the, the day in work and I'd have to I'd go out in stages and I'd disappear for a while just I'd go off and do heroin and come back just anything to get me through the day and then on my way home I'd pretty much then I'd drive down the road I used to work at Fingless I'd drive down the road I'd have a couple of bags of gear heroin for people that don't know what that is and um, I'd do that sometimes I'd fall asleep then for a few hours I'd wake up at 8 o'clock in the evening I remember a couple of times I'd have the fan on because it was so hot I'd have to push my car back up the road <laughs> bad memories of that up the little this little hill and I'd take lots of sleep and tablets and anything to take the pain away because the drugs were just making me feel worse they were making the anxiety worse or in the long term they take it away in the immediate term but in the long term they were making it worse and then I just need more drugs because the withdrawal the, the, the tolerance would kick in I'd need more drugs and more drugs and it was just this slow slow Oh, what way I would describe a slow, painful existence of getting getting away from anxiety. That's all I ever seemed to be doing was trying to get out, run away from anxiety, but at the, with using drugs, but at the same time making it worse. 
which was really strange when you look at it. And when I think about it, that's pretty much all all I done. I went on holidays and I, I went out on nights out and all. In the end, th- they all broke down and that didn't work anymore. And I was always trying to have a good time. And I used to think I did. But only recently I was looking back on photos. I don't know if you've seen photos of me, Andrea. Did you see the two photos of me? I put it in the I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were completely different man. Completely different person. And I felt even worse. And when I look back on some of them photos now, when I was on holidays, I was like smiling through gritted teeth. There was this pain that you can see on all on, in through all of the pictures. And I was always just trying to run away from anxiety, delude myself that I felt so bad on the inside. And that was pretty much my life. And the chemist, going to the chemist every day to get the methadone. If it was a, I was trying to tell myself I was okay and I wasn't a real addict. I'm doing that with... Um, <laughs> between the, between, yeah, between the quotes. Fingers, yeah, yeah. Between quotes, yeah. And I'm not a real addict. But I was, I was, I was, I used to think I didn't do as much drugs as other people. But the bottom line was, what I realised was, I was doing more drugs than anyone else. I was never sick as an addict. I always, because I worked and I schemed, I always had money. I was sort of a, what I used to say, I used to be proud that I was a, sort of a good addict. I, did, I never needed drugs. I always got me drugs. I always managed to get money. But because of that, I, had, I got more and more drugs into me. That just made me worse. And it, was, it had a counter effect on me in the end. Wow. Just a couple of more things to that in a second, but uh, James, sit down. Great sit down. Song. Great song. Great song. And um, that was my favourite song for years, for years and years and years. In addiction, it was just one of my favourite songs. I absolutely love it, and I never knew what the song meant. I never, I never listened to lyrics and um, music. I, I used to set, tell people lyrics aren't important because <laughs> I didn't understand lyrics. I wasn't poetic or uh, not that I'm poetic now, but I'm into writing now and I love language now, so I'm very much into lyrics. And when I listened to that lyrics of that song when I got clean, it's about mental health. It's about, um, oh, what's the lyrics I love now? It's about looking black and white, the black and white of life and stuff like that. But the lyric that really jumps out at me, so we talked about being the madness, being in the madness. We are talking about um, manic depression, being depressed, anxiety, all of these kinds of things. But what is the lyric? Uh, the lyric I love um, if I've never been so ru- if I never seen such riches, I could live with being poor. I didn't know what that was, and then what I thought, then what I thought it was, was um, when I got into addiction. If I didn't see how well I was now, I could go back into it. I could go back into addiction. So I searched like Penny Royalty. I searched what the lyrics of that song actually meant, and what he says, the riches where he went deep into meditation. The lead singer at that time, he went deep into meditation. And he, what he said was, if I didn't see such riches, the, the depths of meditation, the essence of meditation, what you get out of that, he could live with being poor, as in the compulsive thinking, the manic mind of normal life. And I suppose that really relates to me now more than ever because I've, I've, I haven't got, I haven't got like mad deep into meditation because I'm, my baseline is anxiety and overthinking. So I struggle with mindfulness. <laughs> I study mindfulness. I'm writing a book with Brezzi about mindfulness. I teach the neuroscience of mindfulness and I practice it every day. But it's changed my life. It's the foundations of everything good in my life. But a message I try to get to anybody listening to it, uh, to this podcast, or anyone that's interested in mindfulness is, I still find it difficult. So if you're practicing mindfulness, that's not to put you off. If you're practicing mindfulness, it's not supposed to be easy. It's the practice of catching yourself, catching the mad mind and bringing yourself back. It's not hard. It's not easy. But the practice gives you an awareness and gives you so much an ability to to be able to handle life and handle the stresses of life so i just like to get that message out to people out there as well
just before I, I go into the the new Brian, I want to stay with something you just said there, which is really interesting. You said you, you were working, you were a function addict for so many years, and it was okay with whatever work you were doing because they thought you were an alcoholic. Yeah, and that kind of it's. But I know exactly what you're saying, yeah. but it's it's it, it's kind of odd, isn't it? Like the 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 alcoholic Asher yeah, is an alcoholic, granted. Yeah, it's 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 very odd. And for me, if alcohol was just invented now, it would be banned. And and this is a bigger problem in Ireland. This is a bigger problem in Ireland as well. And um, like the bottom line is, I would say if you went into any company, I would say I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I would say, like I, I study psychology now. Part of me PhD research is in addiction, and it's there's a there's a threshold on the audit it's the measure of alcoholism uh, or problematic drinking and i would say 20 to 30 percent of irish people if not more would fall in the bracket of problematic drinkers probably 40 50 percent and because it's so um institutionalized institutionalized it's around us all the time and it's so normalized it's sort of okay so when people get really deep into it now if I was uh, considered an alcoholic that couldn't get his job done I got me job done and it made him very pro- pro- made me very problematic for them because I got the work done I could always point to that well I got that done and I was probably doing it better than other people at times as well so as long as that was the situation and another thing in my job as well I had good friends in there as well so I, I was still sort of Hmm. I was still sort of I don't want to call myself likeable <laughs> it's a terrible thing to be saying yeah, like, you probably were yeah you yeah. probably were but I wasn't I wasn't someone that people would dislike I always had a bit of humour about me and a bit of um, I wouldn't hurt people I had always good morals about me I suppose so I'd never hurt people and I suppose um, that made it more difficult as well but in the end I literally um, I was falling asleep all the time <laughs> in my last meeting me, one of my very last meetings to keep my job Um. I walked back out of the with the meeting with the shop stewards and they said to me, um, I walked up to them and I said, eh, that went well, didn't it? And they looked at me as if I was mental. Apparently I fell asleep in the meeting. I goofed off in the meeting with the main man of the company and the managers of the company. I just fell asleep in the middle of a meeting to keep my job because I was falling asleep. Because I had the drug problem and I thought it went well because I was so unaware. Yeah. So, <laughs> but... <laughs> then again, you mentioned something there again. That was another question I wanted to ask you. Friends... I mean, 15 years is a long time. Um, you have friends, you've had friends during that time. What was the role in all of that? And, and I know I know it's, ne- it's not easy because you close yourself to friendship, you you lie, you do all the things you need to do to keep your addiction. As I say, I, I had those friends. Uh, yeah. And I was way too young to understand what I should have done. Um, but what were your friends doing to to get you away from was anybody kind of going Brian you're going down the drain here something needs to happen yeah so <clears throat> I would have really two two main groups of friends um, my main friends there was four of us growing up so my best friend now he, he sort of stuck by me tr- through it all um, Gar his name is and he had he a very good job now we a director in a company so he stuck through me right to the end <laughs> like I, I think he's a bit mentally actually made me groom, groomsman for his, his wedding like a couple of months before it all escalated which is nuts that shows you how good a friend he was and I think I questioned why I wasn't best man I, like I had to get sent home from the wedding <laughs> I was that bad and I wanted to be best man crazy but um, but he had to distance himself in the end like even a year or two before he, he just started to distance himself from me for his own mental health really and he, he had a he had a wife he was uh, looking to start a family so he had his own things going on so he always kept in seeing where I was but I'd gone so far downhill and he talked to me so much 
that there was nothing he could do. I, I was like, um, I remember my counsellor saying to me one time, I had this protective shield of addiction. I was like a machine gun of verbal diarrhea. If someone came near me, I was just, I had a very good ability to protect my addiction at all costs. So nobody could get near me. My counsellors in the clinics or my best mate or my family. I was just like, my family really tried to help me. Mom, my dad, my sister, my brothers, they really tried to help. But I was like bulletproof to that. And I'd argue, I'd get aggressive. It's the only time I got aggressive was protecting my addiction. So but there was me, my best mate. I had another two friends growing up, and um, two of us. We, we one of them got bad into alcoholism. He's clean now. He's doing well for himself now. And the other one got into me and him got into heroin addiction together. So he's doing. Um, he's not doing too well at all now. He's still deep in it. And from that perspective, we didn't try to help each other because we were we we're together sure, in it yeah. together. But I had friends and work, good friends and work, and my old boss really tried to help me, and they done a massive amount. She was going to bring me into our family home at one stage just to bring me away from ladies' well. But I didn't think I had that bad, bad, bad a problem. I was always trying to tell people, I'm doing this with my methadone, I'm going down a few mills, I'm doing this, I have it under control. And I'd have these fabricated stories that I used to nearly believe myself. And I, because I believed my own lies and believed my own BS, I was very good at telling lies. And people used to think I was always getting better. And in the moment, it looked like I was. It's only when you're looking back on it now as the 15-year progression. How did people not know? Or how did not someone not do something in all that time? If you came to me in so much of that time, I would have had this extravagant plan of how I was getting clean, of how well I've been doing for the last while. And, well, I remember an example of how crazy it kind of was. And I used to, how I used to tell lies to myself, every now and then, I used to, right, I need to go on a health buzz and go on a bit of a health kick. So I remember I'd get, I got a treadmill in my house at one stage in my sitting room. We had a tiny sitting room and I had this treadmill in there. Crazy. And I used to watch friends, be on the treadmill for 20 minutes, eat a few carrots and say, right, I'm getting healthy. But then I'd, I was drinking my methadone, smoking on the gear and taking tablets. But to me, that was, I was telling myself, I'm not that bad. That, that was the thing. I'm not a real addict. Real addicts don't eat carrots and run on a treadmill. And these were the kinds of mad fabricated stories I used to do to make people think it was okay. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear, <laughs> I know, I know what you're saying. No, it's it's, it's interesting because, um, yeah, obviously, so that's important. People did try to help you, and they yes. still they, they still stop by you, which is which is good to know. Um, did you just smoke heroin, or or did you, yeah. did you go down the route of injection? Near the very end, I went down the route of injection. I didn't. I had a morbid fear of needles, which I still do. So that kept me away from it for a long time. So some of my family members did. I think they know. I've mentioned it to them that I have. But I always this was one of the lies that I used to say. I used to. Oh, never. I'm not that bad. I don't inject it. But I did in the end. I didn't do it into my arms. It was, and I, I used to get someone to do it. So like poor yeah. fella has passed away now himself as well. But, um, and I was really strict about clean needles and all of that. Not, I'm not trying to defend yeah, myself yeah, here or anything, but I did get down to that. But I couldn't even put it in myself. I was even, even with a morbid fear of needles. It's making me anxious now, even thinking about it. I still went down that route. Okay. I sort of had to because the smoking just wasn't working. But that was only even near the very end. No, no. There is. I, 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 I spoke to Tony Duffin from Anna Leafy. He was a previous guest on this podcast, and. Um, we had a very interesting conversation about the addiction in, in Dublin specifically, but across Ireland, but that was one of my own curiosity. Yeah. Um, the next song, and then we're going to change the conversation to something else. So nobody else will be there but The National. It's a great song. <laughs> the National, brilliant. Oh, yeah, they're yeah. brilliant. They're brilliant. That song, <clears throat> I actually just love the song. I think it's a brilliant song. It's a lovely beat to it. I love The National. They're very dark. 
but nobody else will be there. And this comes back to the whole lone wolf thing. I, I, I always considered myself a bit of an outlier. I call myself the proverbial outlier. I always seem to be a bit a bit different and something I've often said to people and they always think I'm nuts and I, I don't think as much anymore but it, I, sometimes I'm like oh maybe there is it's like I'm fundamentally flawed as a human being that's what I used to say and I certainly was to an extent when I was clean but sometimes I'm always thinking I just seem to be a little bit different from people in, in a bad way not in a good way and I'm missing something I'm missing this ability to connect with people and I'm getting a lot better at it I'm connecting with people but sometimes it's on um, it's not on as an in, as in, as much of an intimate level as I'd like it to be and I'm not talking about romance even just an intimate level with people with friendships and stuff like that but as I'm developing feelings again like only in the last year or two I was five years clean back in October and I think only in the last year year and a half it's like I'm feeling properly for the same time it's taken me that long and that's because I buried me feelings for so long but I'm still holding back on that a little bit I'm very, I'm very skilled at holding back on my feelings but I'm allowing it to come out a bit more and more and more and the reason why I picked that song was because I always thought of myself as a lone wolf. I seemed to be in addiction as a lone wolf. Like I was a I was a heroin addict for years, but I wasn't a real heroin addict. So I didn't I did I wasn't info, I didn't completely infiltrate that society, but I got into the depths of it all. But I always stayed on the outside, in the depths of it, on the outside. In work, I never fitted in with everyone to an extent. I was always sort of on the outside, and. Even in school, St. Declan's, I went to St. Declan's, but I was always on the outside. And I wasn't like, I don't want to get it across here. I can, I can get on, I, I'm pretty much a people person. I can get on with people. But I never felt completely in a group all the time. That's that's where the, the fundamental human flaw things really, really comes from. And I suppose Nobody Else Will Be There is the main lyric of that song. And I'm very comfortable now in the lone wolf position. I like, I love now I'm going out and meeting all CEOs and stuff. We're probably talking about that now, sending these emails out, coming into this podcast. It's very foreign to me, but I'm very comfortable in foreign situations on my own. And I don't have to worry about other people. So maybe anxiety comes into that as well. And um, I suppose, yeah, nobody, nobody else. It's the comfort of being in the lone wolf position, but it's the discomfort of getting too deep into a deep relationship like I've seen one or two or people very uh, casually recently and throughout my addiction I always kept things very casually but I, I, I'm getting to the age now where I want to settle down I really do want to settle down and I do want to meet somebody the next year is pretty busy it's looking pretty <laughs> chocked so I'm sorry but, but is that the lone wolf kicking in nobody else will be there in the end that's the lyric and that's that song so that's a, that song is sort of a reminder to me to to say don't be the lone wolf it's hard. I, I think I need to settle down I think I do I need to, I need to delve into that that danger zone <laughs> very good we'll put it out there see yeah. if anybody's interested that was the one I, <laughs> this is the one I didn't want to talk about I says I shouldn't tell him that song <laughs> I could go to a dangerous place <laughs> Change is possible. That's we get into it now. Um, you do all lot of different things now. The last five years, you're 
candidate for a PhD at the moment. She's doing <coughs> self-development coaching, motivation speaking, and so on and so forth. So tell me about that journey in the last few years. What, what, where is where it's taking you and what are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Obviously studying, but... Yeah, um, in the last year, that's all changed big time. So I got my scholarship for Trinity College and on the back of working so hard in academia, I've done really well in my primary degree and I just got my master's recently as well. And I'm gonna do me. I'm gonna finish my PhD, obviously. But academia, that was my life was gonna be academia. But during the last year, I found out academia isn't for me. It's not where I think my strengths lie, um, and I don't think I can where where is where I can make the biggest change either. And helping people in particular, especially I want to help help kids. I want to help young people. I do a lot of talks around that. So at the start of last year, start of 2018, I decided, this is when I was still thinking of being an academic, but I was starting to think that I could do other things and write books and, and reach out to people. I got this urge to reach out. I had a good friend of mine who was uh, my supervisor, Michelle Kelly, her name was, was my supervisor in my undergraduate degree. We'd be really good friends now. And I remember telling her, I felt like an energy and that this year is going to be a big year for me. I think I wrote it. I hope we still say friends because I can see myself drifting away from academia. And I remember saying it to her, uh, I think I wrote it in a gift or something or something like that, I, I gave to her. And um, I just really felt something was going to happen in 2018. And that spurred me on, not that, but the, whatever energy that was spurred me on to reach out to some of the most successful people in Ireland. So I'd start doing talks in schools. And some young kids were listening to me, people with anxiety, but I wasn't capturing the imagination or the attention of all the kids in the schools, like the jocks, let's say, the, the people that were doing pretty much okay. And I remember saying, right, how can I get 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 through to them? And I'd already reached out. I'm, I I teach the neuroscience of mindfulness in in UCD. And I, Brezzy was, uh, Niall Breslin was a student there in my first ever class. So he was one of the people I reached out to and we're going to be writing, we're working together, we're going to write a book together. But then I start reaching out to all successful CEOs and people in the arts and entertainment. I just wrote them an email. I wrote an article about that email of how I reached out to them. I started to create a sense of, I was bold, create a sense of intrigue, told me story and my mission. And lots of them got back to me. So I'm all about, and I have been all that time during academia, I just didn't realise it. And that's where me life was going I'm all about personal growth to, uh, and specifically about tools tactics and habits for living a good and healthy happy life that's what I'm really about and that's what I want to give to other people and these are tools that I practice on a daily basis and I practice and write about all the times I pra- I, I, they're all on my website I'll give it a tag at the end if anyone wants to go there but, um, and that's where my life has gone and that's where my career is going to go. So with the corporate talks that I'm doing at the moment, I'm delivering it into some of the, some great, I've done a big talk in AIB last week to the CEOs, the CEO in AIB, the CEO, all the top executives in AIB and I'm going to be doing that in other companies. And I'm delivering it, I'm delivering my story and how it, so that shows how it can be done coming from sort of addiction. Um, I try to get across to people that you can be happy and bold and playful and have fun doing all of this. It's not all serious. Mental health is a serious game, but getting well can be a very, can be a great journey if you use the right tools and you put the right practices in. That's how it's been for me anyway. And suppose what what I've done is I deliver them to schools. I deliver these tactics and talks to companies and I write about them and that that's where I am at the moment. So I will be finishing my PhD uh, which is on mindfulness interventions and I'm learning so much from that I'm learning learning, getting great skills from that as well but it's really about delivering tools in a practical simple way 
so people can apply them, apply, apply them in their own lives, take away tools that they can apply in their own lives. That's what I really want to do. Okay. And uh, you mentioned AIB and you'll be doing other corporate uh, events or talks. Who who hires you and why? I mean, who is the is the CEO that says, I want you to come in to talk to my executive team or whatever they're called? Um, so this has only happened last week. So this was me. This is the boldness factor here. So I literally reached out to the CEOs. I wrote them the emails and I went in to have a chat with them. I didn't even know I wanted to do speaking at the time. And then the speaking had sort of happened in the meantime. So I sort of put, oh, would you know what I've done? I remember now I started doing talks in schools. And when I got the meeting with the CEOs as a thank you to the CEOs, I'd say, oh, by the way, if you want me to do a talk in your kid's school or a neighbor's school, the school in your area, I'll do a talk as a thank you for giving me the time for the tools and tactics you've given me today. And then a couple of them got back to me and, and said, oh, you can do a talk in my in my company. So Mick Slane of Robus, it's a company, a lighting company over in Nanango Road. He, he sort of, he met, he's a great mentor for me now and he says, oh, you can do a talk in my company. So that was one of the first ones. And then Carolyn Lennon from Air asked me to do a talk in her company. I don't know whether I asked. I think it she, I asked, would he be interested? I think Carolyn might have actually said, if you want to do a talk in Air? And I done one there and I really got the bug for it. And then Bernard Bourne of AIB asked me the same thing. Do you want to come and do a talk in, in AIB? And the talk in AIB went so well. Like it was really, I was, I'm still buzzing from that talk. It went really, really well. They brought in a video team, a production crew. It, it was great. And a lot of the leading execs there in the last week have gotten in contact with me, the head of market and the head of HR uh, and the head of the audit team. I'm going to be doing a big talk in Trim Castle on the 11th of April. They've all asked me back in to do talks to other teams. Brilliant. So that's that's where that's going now. Uh, luckily enough, actually, I got signed up by uh, an agency, Lisa Richards' agency as well. So they're sort of looking after me on that front as well. Yeah, I, I know them well. They're, they're great. They're great. They, they're they, brilliant. They, they look after a couple of people that have been on the podcast, oh, including okay. Steve Wall of the, the Stunning and a few other people that I know. Excellent. That's great. You only live once, the strokes. Yeah, and uh, I suppose that doesn't that doesn't go deep. That doesn't go deep at all. It's just a, re- a big favorite of a song of mine. I love the song. It's a great song. I love the Strokes. That album is just is that their no? That's not their. This is its album now. That that's the fourth album is just epic. But that song is just brilliant. Great song and just it says it all. You only live once. Be bold. Take a risk. Embrace failure and learn from it. Don't fear rejection. One of the biggest things that I've learned in my life is people don't like negative feedback. I love negative feedback because I see it as learning. That's how I learn. I don't see it as a negative. I see it as a positive because it's growth. Same with boldness. Be bold. Take a chance. Take a risk. If you fail, fail better next time. And it comes back to that. You only live once. Go for it. You know. And if you fail, you only live once anyway. And who cares? Like it's nobody cares. Only you care in your head. say that yeah oh, actually no yeah yeah i was just starting to touch on it but um it's 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 loosely based around um, mindfulness. yeah 
Okay. Well, that's great. You're working. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. There's <laughs> no problem. But like, Brez is a great character. Oh, he's brilliant. And, and, and he's doing fantastic great work. Guy. And what I like about him, um, he's just done his own book recently, a children's book. Yeah. Um, but what I, I do like about him uh, is um, he's very, he, kids really relate to him. You know, he's such a, a great presence and, you know, the, the whole sport thing behind him. Yeah. And you just mentioned there that one of the main things you're really interested in is in the mental health for kids and young people. What are you doing about that? And what, through your study and what you're doing now, what, what do you reckon is the solution? Look, I know you don't have a solution. You don't have a silver bullet. But what, yeah. what's your um, input into, into breaking the cycle of mental health for you know, for the 14-year-old that for the hopefully 14 is not going off doing what you did or what other people are doing out there at the moment. You yeah, know? and I think uh, the four, today's 14-year-old has it a lot tougher than us by the look of it. Was so, so no smart, there was no mobile phones when I was 14. Don't mm. mind smartphones. And um, comparison is the big deal. And I think they're comparing themselves to other people on social media. And for me, it all comes back to the thinking mind, the compulsive thinker, the, the thoughts in your head that says, um, the thoughts in your head that basically says, you're not good enough, you're not this, you're not that. And that's... That's brazy ringing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the thoughts in your head that says, you're not good enough, you're not, you're, not, um, you're not as good as them. Comparison is a huge thing. And I think... Anxiety just from being bombarded with messages, being bombarded with advertisements and you have to do this, you have to do that, beeps, phones going off all the time and there's a lot more to it that's not coming to me to me mind right now. I just think they're struggling a lot more than we did. But don't, let me ask you, when you go and do your talks in the schools, um, and I know like you know, schools, we all go to school, most of us sleep through uh, yeah, a lot of it, and then you know they bring along this guy. He's going to talk about mindfulness. And what kind of reaction you get? I mean, right, because that's the key. You know, you go in, and there's the guy showing him how to grow plants. Whatever, there's all yeah. sorts of things. You know? So what I do, and I've learned this from writing as well, is you have to grab the audience's attention very very quickly so i done a talk for transition year students in the science gallery. Yes, it was about twenty of them. Great group of people, great energy, and. I didn't go in and say, my name is Brian, I'm doing a PhD. I think I was supposed to talk about my PhD. I didn't really talk about that. I went in and the first words out of my mouth was, because I think they thought I was going to talk about my research, which I did a little bit. But I says, I'm a, I was a heroin addict for 15 years, so I know about addiction. I'm wondering how many addicts are in this room right now. I think it's 100%. You're addicted to drama. You're addicted to gossip. You're addicted to thinking. You're addicted to comparing yourself to other people. So I grabbed their attention very, very quickly. And then I brought in the authority element of it. It says, right, I'm doing a PhD. I, I love the boldness angle and the reaching out to the PhDs because I, I bring mindfulness in in the way I say, mindfulness not only helped me get control my emotions and make me, make me feel good and happy. It says it's given me the ability to reach out to people, to not fear uh, failure, to not fear rejection. It's given me the ability to have a really wholesome and great life. And I think that really grabs their attention because kids today are not looking for solutions to their... Uh, they, are, they want solutions, but they're not looking for the tools. They're not interested in the tools. And this, this is... Uh, uh, and most adults aren't interested in the tools. They want a quick fix. But the tools are life-changing things. The tools you have to implement on a daily basis. So what I tried to do was I tried to shock them into showing them this is what I was like. This is what I'm like now. So I tried to show a real big comparison. That's why I put my picture up before or after. And then I tried to give it. When I do give them the tools, I focus on self-care. 
one big thing I say is I always talk about an ability to say no. We're always saying yes, yes, it's grand, especially Irish people. I can do this, I can do that. And But sometimes we need to say no. We need to look after ourselves first. The example I love is the common example. It's like a parent, if, it, if the oxygen goes on an airplane, the parent does not look at, doesn't, put the child's oxygen mask on first they put their own oxygen mask on first they can only look after the child if they look after themselves another line I loved was a lifeguard makes a lousy lifeguard if he's drowning he has to be strong and look after himself first so I'm always trying to give these kids tools for self care look after yourself first and then you can look after your friends what I find interesting as well is that kids especially that are um, that are very caring and sensitive and sympathetic and trying to help other people with other issues, mental health issues, they never look after their own mental health. Mm. They're trying to look after the whole world and they don't look after themselves. I couldn't look after anyone in addiction when I was an addict because I didn't look after myself. Mm. But now by looking after myself, which sometimes appears as selfish, and this is the bullet that people are afraid of, I don't want to look selfish. I don't care to people if I look selfish because I and it's not I don't care what people think obviously I do to an extent but if I know deep down and my values are right and my morals are right and I know I'm looking after myself to help other people I'm gonna have to say no and if someone thinks I'm selfish or tells someone I'm selfish yeah it might hurt me a little bit but if I'm doing the right thing I have to be strong enough in that to know I'm helping the bigger the bigger crowd and the bigger numbers by helping myself to be able to do these talks saying no is a big thing and I have tools we haven't got time not to go into the tools I use to say no if anyone's interested you will get it on my website as well it's why when and how to say no but by me saying no to things like coffee shop meetings every single talk offer I get that could help only a few people I have to say no to a lot of them because I'm getting a lot of offers now so I can help more people I have to say no to certain academic things I'm asked to do so I can spend more time with my nephews things that are important by saying no to some things I, fo I validate and focus on what's really important in my life and that's a really important thing to recognise I think Absolutely and one last question on that as, as well as doing the talk for the children am I right saying it would be important to do a talk for the teachers because I mean they're they're in a really awkward position trying to look after 30 14 15 16 year old and they don't really have all the tools do they no and is it some any schools asking you to do that yet or no um <laughs> I don't want to put the like loads of uh offers out there but not not many skills are coming to me I saw I'm sort of going to skills okay. funnily enough but um it didn't come to me I'll, if uh, if time permits I will do them so I'll be happy enough to do them but um they haven't and one one of the talks my first school talk that I don't actually I remember um I wouldn't have been as good a speaker back then for the talks I was only starting out but I remember a couple of the teachers coming over to me and says oh my god I got so much out of that myself and that really does a lot of tools I do I think the teachers could really do with the tools mm. so they get to handle the kids better they handle themselves better the self care you're talking the self -care, about the self care um, I was talking about yeah okay the second last song is um, I Miss You Blink 182 the one you text me the other night the one I, I text oh, you the guy, you thought getting, I was missing you already it's, get, it's getting too close <laughs> 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 I meant to talk to you. I, no, no, I leave that for now because I want to crack a joke about that another time. Um, I'm at a ruin now. <laughs> I had a good plan for that one. Damn. <laughs> I was going to text you next week. I really am missing you, Andrea. <laughs> but um, that song, yeah, that's a big one for me. And um, that's a song about, um, I didn't know what it was about, but I remember I, I, did, I only heard that in recovery. And when I heard that, it was like, it was a big realisation of how married to heroin I was, because that's actually a love song. 
have a bit of, and of his ex-girlfriend and um, he misses her and the darkness in the darkness of the night she's the only thing that would fix it I think that's what, what it actually means but when I listened to that song I thought of her I says I miss you <laughs> and I do of all the drugs I don't miss any of the drugs and I can have even a glass of wine one or two glass. I don't get drunk but I can have a glass of wine and I, I, I tend not to drink ever because it, it's it's my energy isn't as high the next day I'm about, all about energy but heroin still whistles to me. It's still like, it's still like, I could not be in a room with people doing heroin because it calls to me so much and I miss it. That's the song, I miss you. And I remember uh, the lyrics of that song was, um, in the dark, I'll come, I forget the lyrics exactly now. I was trying to listen to it before I came in. But it was like, it, it comes in and saves you in the darkness of the night, in your nightmares, save you from your nightmares. And I was like, that's what heroin done for me. I was, li- I was a living nightmare of anxiety and heroin was my saviour and even though I'm not suffering anymore I still miss it that was the power and for me I think every addict every person but especially addicts I find are looking for a spiritual solution and a spiritual solution for me is awareness spirituality is awareness for me it's like an inner peace and awareness it's not religious whatsoever and it's an energy it's a lovely energy and what heroin gives you is this fake spirituality. It's this fake awareness, this fake peace. It's a beautiful peace when you're in it, and it's exceptionally beautiful when you're struggling with anxiety or any mental health issues. It feels fantastic, I won't deny that, but it's fake. And I had a, a perspective shift in detox. It was the most amazing time of my life, the most... It was like I was on drugs. It was like a manic episode and it felt amazing and I went on for a while after that. And what I came to realise was that me, the compulsive thinking mind, mind had quietened down. My anxiety went away and it was like the world came alive. It was like a glow came into my life. Reality. It was like I was so in contact with the present moment. I was on a farm in detox. It was like the greens were so green. The animals on the farm, I, think, like, I was a bit deluded as well. So I think I was thinking I was speaking to the animals like <laughs> telepathically, and I was a bit crazy. Like it was, it wasn't very, it wasn't like pure clarity. It was like a, a real intense present moment awareness mixed with the madness of an addict getting that. But um, yeah. So where I went off on a tangent there. Where was I with that? That's okay. We were just talking about I miss you. I miss you. Yeah. So yeah. So what that gave me a real spirituality kind of feeling but i've lost that to an extent i haven't lost it i live in the real world i'm not on a farm i'm not still living on a farm with animals and i, I was nearly gonna go to thailand and just live in live in a, in a monastery and just meditate for the rest of my life that was the goal because i loved that but it was nearly like an addiction a craving a striving for the drug again the spirituality drug and but i live in the real world now and i'm never I, i'm not chasing or striving to have that I would love to have it but I have enough in the meditation that I do but when I hear that song I get nostalgic and I do miss heroin but I don't miss heroin I do miss heroin but what I really miss is the peace of mind it gives me I have a lot of peace of mind now but it keeps me on balance to know that the the urge is still there and I can never be anxious again I can't drink again because it would make me anxious again and that could bring me back into needing heroin for the that false peace of mind again so that song just keeps me in mindful of the fact that I am still drawn towards the dangers of life and I need to keep myself I need to look after me so I don't go down that rabbit hole again hello there the angel from my nightmare 
The shadow in the background of the morgue The unsuspecting victim Of darkness in the valley We can live like Jack and Sally if we want Where you can always find me And we'll have Halloween on Christmas And in the night we'll wish this never ends We'll wish this never ends Now, just to, to wind it up the way you got out of it and and now you know look you look fit you do some exercise i'm sure you're doing something yeah. what yeah, would you say to somebody that is struggling at the moment to get out of to 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 get to the stage where you're at where you can listen to a song and say yeah i miss you but i'm not going back there you know you're the old girlfriend i had i now have a new girlfriend yeah i'm moving on um what would you say huh? what practically what did you do like apart from the detox <coughs> what what replaced that daily need you know meditation is one thing exercise what else do you do what else do i do right so i i also teach and um, i only i start down at this year it's the neuroscience of addiction so i teach it in uh, trinity and it was it's on the the masters for addiction course there and i had a conversation with a couple of the students they would have come in, not from addiction but teaching counselors in addiction and all and in recovery, they say meditation's a great thing. It's a fantastic tool, but it's not reinforcing. If you, you don't get a kick out of meditation. So if you're coming from a drug addiction, from a, a biological perspective, you're getting dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit. Sex addiction, food addiction is the same. It's big rewards, reward, 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 dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. If you come out of addiction, your brain still craves that dopamine. Meditation isn't really going to give that to you. Over time, that's the practice that you have to implement. You should implement that straight away. But I think you need to replace that addiction. This is my personal opinion. It's not clinical perspective, yeah, yeah. but it's my personal opinion that you need to um, recreate that in some way until you get well enough in yourself to bring in other practices. For me, from a practical perspective, exercise is fantastic. It gives you the endorphin hit. It gives you the dopamine hit. I think these call it endorphins. I'm not sure the biology behind that completely. But you get rewarded from exercise. For me, it was learning and personal growth stuff. I hooked into that personal growth stuff. I would say I'm still addicted to personal growth and learning. I love it. So I hooked my addiction anchors onto another coke. That's what I done. And um, that's the angle I went on. So find something that you enjoy, anything, and get your kicks out of that. Something healthy, something positive, something healthy. And I defined in a, I was in AA and NA and all them uh, great, great associations. I needed them badly for a while, for a couple of months. But um, I found something, like in AA, they started to give biscuits and it's all about, and that's great if you need some other reward thing. But I find a lot of people, you could get you get addicted to food. You could replace the addiction there. So the food is a dangerous one. So I'd hook onto something healthy, like personal growth, training, hiking, nature, going out in nature. The other natural dopamine hits, the reward hits you get in life. That would be my practical advice for that. And am I right in saying that what your personal growth, but what you're doing, the helping other, like having uh, having that reward, I mean that that one kid or that one person that yeah. rings you up and say, look, thanks for the talk, you know, things have changed. That that must be that must be the best dopamine. Amazing, take. amazing, and that's what AA will be good for as well. So if you get into AA and become a sponsor, you're helping other people. So it, it wasn't a nice fit for me. It's 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 great for some people, but um yeah, when I work with people now, and I had a couple of kids. I remember one kid particularly came up, and um after that talk, me very first talk, 
and he came up to me. It was only I think they were second years, and he came up and he was like, he was ecstatic about. It. He says, oh, "I'm gonna do that. I, I'm gonna." He was really excited. I'm gonna do that. I'm really gonna do that. And the dopamine hit I got from that that carried me forward to. I think that was supposed to be a one-off talk I was gonna do, and I done more talks on the back, probably of that feeling I got from that. That gave me a huge dopamine hit, and it's all selfish. Look, we we can only um, experience uh, life from our own perspective, so, so it's all selfish at the end of the day. So if you're getting your dopamine hits off other people telling you that they feel great because you're helping them, so be it. Absolutely. So be and it. And yeah. you're obviously very passionate about it. It comes through the just just watching you talk <laughs> about it. It's great. I mean, yeah. that's, well, that's what this little project is about, about what drives us to do what we do. And, you know, you're doing it for the right reason. It's fantastic. So if people want to find out about you, give us a few tags of where to find you online, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was chatting to a friend of mine. He, he, he only said it to me earlier on that I need to change all my tags on Twitter and Instagram okay. to say the same thing. And I obviously do because I forget my own tags. But... Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, the main place to get me is my website. So my website is uh, www.brianpenny.com. So B-R-I-A-N-P-E-N-N-I-E. Okay. All word, .com. And you'll get all my handles, my Twitter, my Instagram. So for Instagram, I put up all my blogs and inspirational quotes. Twitter is pretty much the same. I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm on all these pl platforms purely to promote me brand, not me brand, to promote me work yeah. in helping others. That's pretty much what I do. But if you go to my website, I also have weekly newsletters. So if you go to my website and su su subscribe to my weekly newsletter, I write a blog every week. I provide content that I loved all around personal growth, learning, good books, and I provide a lot of information around that. And I'm also in this group, the Slack group of international writers and international personal growth experts, and we promote each other's work as well. So you get all that information from my website and on, on my newsletter. But the one thing I'd like to say as well is my, my, my purpose in life, and it's to show people, the full thing is with a relentless belief that we are what we think, my mission is to show people that change is possible. Yeah. But the key point is demonstrating actionable steps through a lived experience. I don't do theory. I, 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 I act and what works for me, and it doesn't work for everyone, yeah. what works for me, I write about it, I act it out, I write about it, and then I talk about it to other people. So anything I talk about, I've put the action in, and I've also written about it. So you'll find anything I talk about on my blogs, everything I do is on my blogs, on my website. And you'll find all the information there. My tags for Instagram is I mean, Instagram is Brian Penny seventy eight, and I think Twitter is Penny Brian. They'll find you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you walk in the walk, which is the most important thing. You know, you don't just talk the talk. I always ask everybody for one quote, one word of wisdom, some words of wisdom, um, anything at all gets you up in the morning. Could be your own quote. Could be. Uh, right I'd love to give about 10 just give us one <laughs> give us one right I'll give you my own quote Go my on. own quote and it's like something out of Al one of the guys out of the writer group said it's like uh, something out of Alice in Wonderland but it's uh, be true to your wonderfully weird self you'll attract what you want and repel what you don't sounds great to me the last song you gave me is Still Sane, which <laughs> Still Sane. By Lordy. By Lordy. Oh, it's a great song. It's a great song. And um, what she talks about there is, and this could come across, uh, oh, I should probably, does this fit the mental, oh, uh, sometimes I'm confused, or not confused, I'm conflicted with the mental health health realm of, I know it's a couple of people that follow me, mental health blogs on Twitter and stuff, that maybe they're not as keen on the boldness and the 
embrace failure stuff because some people that are struggling with mental health maybe they shouldn't be bold or they shouldn't be embracing failure so but I need to be true to myself and I need to do what's working for me so I'm not I'm trying to help people but I have to stay true to myself and and that that's what I have to do so sometimes I'm on a balancing act here of this and there's a lyric in that that just gets me is that, that I'm coming for the crown and I'm chasing so I, I I'm I, I'm chasing big things. I'm being bold and I'm chasing big things. And it's not like I'm going to chase people and I'm chasing big things and I'm going to stand on everyone's head to get there. I aim big, I dream big, and I be bold in doing that. And the bigger and bolder I am and the bigger I dream, if my goals are right and I'm always looking to develop personal growth, self-care and help other people and get me message across, dream big and I'll help more people. And that's the goal and that's that's why that song is important to me. Well, Brian Penny, thanks a million for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrea. It was fantastic. Thank you. Today is my birthday and I'm riding high. Hair is dripping, hiding it, I'm terrified. But this is summer, playing dumber than in fall. Everything I say falls right back into everything. I'm not in the same thing. Bikes were still sane I won't be hurt tripping over on stage Hey, it's all cool I still like hotels but I think that'll change Still like hotels in my newfound fame Hey, promise I can stay good Every I'm little but I'm coming for the crowd if you got this far in the podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please give us a review on iTunes. It'd be very helpful and much appreciated. Thank you.